Abundant Life Church. It is so great to be with you. I love this time of year, and I got to just tell you, uh, you know, my family's adjusting to this. We're used to Arizona winters, and so we're getting used to it. And uh, it's been a great couple weeks of sunshine and beauty and all of this. And uh, my oldest, we're, we're going to school the other day, and he says, Dad, does it, like, rain here in the winter at all? I was like... That's a funny question. That's, uh, that's funny. I think we'll talk about that later. Uh, but I am so glad to be with you guys. I love this time of year. I love Christmas. And I've been saying that every week. I literally think I've been, you know, beginning every message telling you about my love of Christmas. So today, I'm going to give a shout out to all of those who don't like Christmas. You know who you are. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand and kill the Christmas cheer for the rest of us. But you know who you are. You're like, you know what? I'm done with the music. I'm done with the decorations. I'm done with all of this. Bring on January. I get it. Uh, so today we're going to talk about you uh, because there are things about Christmas. There are things about Christmas that, you know, are a little bit weird. I get that. And, and maybe you look at it and you go, yeah, but, but what about this? And what about that? And I, I get it. Like, for example, have you ever noticed how some people celebrate Christmas? It's a little bit strange. For example, the Flintstones. You ever notice the Flintstones celebrate Christmas? But let me ask you a question. How do you celebrate Christmas? Before the birth of Christ. <laughs> Just saying, guys, deep thoughts. I mean, figure that out. I don't know. What are they celebrating right now? I don't know. I don't know what they're celebrating. Uh, so we're in week three of our Christmas series. Uh, hopefully you've been with us. Uh, today we're going to talk about someone who really, really doesn't like Christmas. Like to the point where he's the villain of the Christmas story. He hates Christmas. And every good story has a villain, even Christmas stories. And we go, this, oh, it's Christmas time. Here's some Christmas villains you may recognize. We got the Grinch. We got Scrooge. These are the villains of Christmas. But if you notice uh, that even in the Christmas story, these villains have a change of heart. They become good guys. And it's, you know, I hate to spoil it for you, but it, it's, it's a good story. The person we're looking at today is a guy named King Herod. Does not have a change of heart. Does not have a warm, fuzzy, happy ending to this story. He's a villain of Christmas all the way through. And so we're going to look at this story. If you've got your Bibles, we're in Matthew chapter 2. I encourage you to get that out. And hopefully you have a Bible with you today. If you've got an analog one, just go to the New Testament. Get your spot in Matthew 2. We're going to read along. If not, if you've got a Bible app or uh, something on your phone, get that out. And I encourage you to follow along as well. We want you to read this for yourself. Um, as we uh, study the scriptures today together. Well, when we talk about King Herod, we're talking about a guy that, that we actually have a lot of historical references about, uh, not just the Bible. So we have what the biblical account is. We also can just read through history. Herod became governor of Galilee at age 25, and he would rule in Galilee for the next 33 years. So he had a very long time. Now, you may be confused. You're like, wait a minute. You, you mentioned a couple weeks ago that, you know, this is under Roman rule. Uh, Herod works for Rome. Okay, so he works ultimately for Caesar, but he's the governor of this area. So he's the littler ruler uh, assigned to this region. And Herod's job is to keep this region in check. And, and it was a hard job because uh, there had been a lot of uprisings and the Jews did not always agree with what Rome was doing. And so they found this guy that they thought maybe Herod will be the one to, to help us. Maybe Herod can be the guy. And Herod took this job very seriously. Like, I will deliver for Rome. I'll be the one that can keep this region under check. So Herod even went to the Roman Senate and he asked them for a special title. He didn't want just governor. He wanted a special title that, that designated the significance of his role. And the title he requested was the King of the Jews. And so the Roman Senate gives him this title officially. 
And so Herod has this title and he wears it as a badge of honor. This is who he is. He's the king of the Jews. Now Herod uh, had 10 different wives and he, and he fathered 15 different children. So part of what gets confusing, whenever we read scripture, we read about Herod, you'll see this name referenced a lot. But it's not just one Herod. There's a bunch of them because of how many kids he had. So let me try to put this in perspective for us so we understand. Here's the family tree of Herod. Today, the only guy we're talking about is Herod the Great, all right? He's the most significant of all of them. The, the beginning uh, chapters, Luke 1 and 2 and Matthew 2, uh, those chapters are about Herod the Great. But Herod is old at this point. And, and so he has, uh, here are four of his significant sons. He has 15 kids. Uh, Herod Antipas is the one throughout the gospel account. So if you read as Jesus as an adult, uh, he's interacting with Herod Antipas. That's the Herod at that time. You fast forward, you get to the book of Acts, which is the, the story of the, the birth of the church and all that. You're into Herod's grandson, uh, King uh, Agrippa, Herod Agrippa. Uh, and then you, you see, you know, other references to the end of Acts. So all of these are guys you see referenced, sometimes all by the same name, Herod. And you may have wondered, uh, is this guy like live forever? Like what's the deal? How is he in all these stories? Different guys. So today you need to understand, we're talking about Herod the Great. He's the, he's the, the most dominant of them all. And he's the one uh, in power at the time Jesus was born. So let's look at Matthew chapter 2 together. We're going to look at the Christmas story in light of Herod and Herod's perspective into all of this. So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Why is Herod disturbed? A couple of reasons. Number one, he's, he's suffering from the ailments, which will eventually lead to his death. And so he's got convulsions. His skin is covered in open sores. He's rapidly losing his mind. So when you get to this story, this is not a Herod in his prime. This is not a, a Herod who's vibrant and full of life. This is a tyrant holding on to power while his life is slowly slipping away from him. And so I don't know what you picture when you picture a king like that. Let me give you a couple images. Maybe you picture Immortan Joe from Mad Max. You know, maybe this is your view that you want to have of Herod as you read this. Or maybe a Theoden from Lord of the Rings. Either one of these would work great uh, for how I picture Herod. This guy that has all this power, but his body is failing him. And, and he's not aging well. And so he's trying to figure out what to do with this. So these magi come. And, and notice what they, what they say. Hey, we've come to find the one who was born king of the Jews. Here it goes. That's my title. What, what, what do you mean? What, what do you mean? A, 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 a baby born king of the Jews? I, I had to ask the Roman Senate for this title. How is a baby born the king of the Jews? You can imagine this. And the, 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 word, the Greek word there for disturbed could literally be rendered. He began to shake violently. He's literally convulsing as he's getting the news, thinking about what this means for him. And it says that all of Jerusalem with him was disturbed. Why? Because when Herod's mad, bad things happen. And so all of Jerusalem's going, oh no, Herod's mad, uh, something bad is going to happen to us. When we realize early in the story that the presence of Jesus threatens those who love power. Here's what's fascinating. This is baby Jesus. This is not Jesus, the rabbi, as an adult in his 30s. This is Jesus as a little infant 
newborn. When's the last time you've been threatened by a baby? I mean, this is the level that Herod is understanding who Jesus is. And yet this is always true, that if you love power, you're gonna have a battle against Jesus because Jesus is gonna, is gonna rob that power of you, rob that control of you and, and offer you something else. And, and Herod's gotta wrestle with that. But Herod loves his power, he loves his control. He's not willing to concede that to a little baby. And so history tells us that, that Herod was a paranoid tyrant throughout his, his rule and, and was constantly worried about you know, these threats to his power. Of his 10 wives, he had one that was his favorite wife and he had special instructions for her. Here are the instructions. If he were to die while traveling abroad, he had told his soldiers to immediately kill his wife because if he couldn't have her, he didn't want anyone to have her. It's real love, ladies, you know, real love. So of this, you know, this wife that he had, he, uh, she had two parents and he decided, you know what? Th these parents are a threat to me. So he had her parents killed. Um, then eventually he got frustrated with her. So he had her killed and then he had two sons with her and he realized these guys will probably not like me. So he had them killed and this is his favorite wife. Like just to put that in perspective, uh, Herod had also imprisoned some Jewish elders in the community. And the reason why is he told his soldiers, when I die, kill all these Jewish elders that are in prison because he wanted there to be great mourning upon his death. And he knew if it was just him to die, people would celebrate. So he says, I don't want celebration. I want mourning. Kill all these respected elders in the community the moment I die. He also had one son named Antipater who he was especially concerned about trying to get his power. And so he gave instructions, kill Antipater when I die. I don't want him to have the, you know, the, the kingdom next. And he didn't even let that happen until he died. Five days before his death, Herod ordered the death of his son Antipater. And you start to get this picture of Herod as a ruler. So much so that Caesar Augustus once famously said that he would rather be Herod's pig than his son. When the, the Roman Caesar says that about you, it gives you a picture into who this guy was. Now you may wonder, why on earth would Rome put up with this? Why on earth is he allowed to, why does nobody stop him? Well, what you realize back then is very true of today as well, that you can often behave badly as long as you get results. So Herod delivered results. Rome got what they want and they turned a blind eye to the rest and said, hey, the ends justify the means. Herod gets us what we want. And Herod was good at a number of things. One of them in particular was building. He was a great builder. Many of the things that he built still stand today. One archeologist said it like this, Herod the great master builder, despite his crimes and excesses, no one can doubt his prowess as a builder. He built numerous fortresses all around the region, which were often uh, because of his paranoia, whenever he was you know, threatened, he could go to one of these fortresses no matter where he was. He built something known as the Temple Mount, which is still in place today. I'll show you a picture of this. So this is the Temple Mount, and, and this would originally have been the Jewish temple. This is now the Dome of the, the, uh, the, Dome of the Rock now, the mosque. And, and so uh, this whole thing is all built up. This is all the mount. It is massive. I have walked on this, and it, it's stunning to see this still around today. And if you're trying to figure out how big is this, like 28 football fields would fit on this thing. Herod built that. It still stands Today, you, you get to see the significance of what this guy built. He even expanded the Jewish temple on top of it, which was around at that time. 
One author says that the way that Herod did this with the temple was a masterful piece of religious diplomacy. Herod knew, as long as I get these results, as long as I keep the Jews happy with the temple and the things that I'm building, I can get away with the rest of this. But here's what's interesting. We don't remember Herod today because of all the things he built. That's not why we talk about him. We talk about him about once a year because of a baby, because of how threatened he was by a baby. Now, it's easy to look at Herod and go, oh, he's a villain, and I would never do anything like that. But I want to just slow down a second because we all could find ourselves understanding a little bit of what Herod feels. So let me personalize this. What does it take for you to feel threatened? Now, Herod was threatened by everything and anything, but what does it take for you to feel threatened? Does it happen when someone disagrees with you? Oh, I need you to agree with me for me to feel good about what I believe in. So, so I'm not okay with this. You know, why don't you agree with me? What about when you're trying to do something and someone won't support you? They won't get behind it. Does it, does it threaten you? What about when someone else has success? Does, does that threaten you if you don't have an equal share of success? There's a lot of things that can threaten us, even if we consider ourselves. So I'm not, I'm not that kind of person. I don't get threatened easily. Sometimes it can surprise us. I remember about a year ago, I was uh, about to go on a flight with uh, some friends, about a five-hour flight. And uh, we're sitting in the, the airport, and, uh, and I, I love the people watch whenever I get in the airport. And so uh, I'm sitting in the terminal just watching people walk by, you know, throughout the, the, the terminal. And as I'm sitting there watching, I see the biggest guy I have ever seen in real life. Okay, now I've seen big guys on movies and stuff, but like the hugest guy I've ever seen in person come walking through. He's got a cut off, you know, shirt with the sleeves and, and his arms are just overflowing out of his shirt. And I look at this guy and it's one of those like, holy cow, look at that guy. And so I literally am hitting my friends like, check this guy out. And we all are just stunned in awe of how big this guy is. It's like, don't ever say a crossword to this guy. I mean, like, holy cow, he just you know, nonchalantly strolls through the terminal and goes on his way. And we're like, man, I'm thinking, you don't see a guy that size every day. He's just, he's a huge guy. So we don't think anything about it. Keep talking and hang out until we get on our flight. It comes time to board. And I love to get an, an, uh, a window seat. That's kind of my preferred seat. And so I get there and I'm getting everything situated. I have a five-hour flight, you know, debating, is it watching a movie or all this and kind of what I'm going to have to do. And so I go and I'm sitting down and getting everything ready. Well, about the point I start to realize that the roads are filling up, I look over to see who's coming next to me, and it's this guy. He is in the seat next to me riding Twinkie for five hours. I'm going, you have got to be kidding me. This guy is going to sit middle seat next to me? So he comes and sits down. I immediately pull my arm in because I'm like, you have the armrest. It is yours. I can seat it. Not even going to try this. So I just, you know, I, I lean over. He sits down, I kid you not, and he tries to tuck his arms in as much as he can. Even so, he's sitting like this. His arm is so big, it still is pushing me into the window. And I'm sitting there, and I have one of these crazy moments where I'm like, no one is going to believe this. I mean, just no one is going to believe it. And so then I had the next thought, I need to get a picture of this. So I do something that's very unlike me. Uh, I'm normally an introvert, I'm kind of a, a shy guy in, in public if I don't know you. And so uh, I look at this guy and I said, hey, um, can I ask you an awkward question? He looks at me and I'm like, can I take a picture of your arms? <laughs> seems, like a, seems like a straight straightforward question. And he looks at me and he's like, okay. So I'd like to show you. 
I would like to show you a photo of me and my friend uh, on the flight next to each other. It's not that funny. I know you can't see our faces, so in case you're confused, I'm the one on the left. Um, yeah, it turns out this guy's a professional bodybuilder named Robert Timms. Uh, so this is what this guy looks like uh, in real life. Yeah, sitting next to me on a flight for five hours. Here's the point. When I went into that flight that day, I felt great about my body. My self-esteem was high. <laughs> felt like I was doing pretty well at life, you know. By the time I went to bed that night, I had all kinds of issues I was working through. You know, like I got to hit the gym. Something's wrong. I feel threatened, right? It doesn't take much. And here's the deal is that we can sit here, we can read the story of Herod and go, Herod, I can't believe that. I, I can't believe you're so threatened by a baby. And yet the reality is that whatever you're trying to control right now, whatever you're trying to have power over, if something started pushing on it, you'd feel threatened too. And the question is, what do we do when we feel threatened? Do we go, hey, whoa, this is, this is I, need to, I need to reverse this. Or do we double down? Go, nope, I'm going to make sure I maintain control. I'm going to make sure I maintain my power. This is what Harry decided. You know, it doesn't matter what I'm learning. I will maintain the control despite this child. Here's what I, I just have realized. You will either fight against this story or you'll submit your life to it. Those are really the two options that we have. We would like to think there's like a third option, like, no, I just want to be indifferent to it. I don't really want to follow it. I don't want to fight it. Just kind of be cool with it. I, I don't think that's really an option. I think you'll realize you're going to do one of these two. You're going to find yourself fighting against what Jesus is doing around you, or you're going to submit it and go, you know what? God, whatever you want to do, I'm on board. What do, what do you need me to give up? What do you need me to risk? What do you need me to, to sacrifice? I'm on board. And if not, you're going to be constantly battling up against it. Keep reading in verse 4. When Herod had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. They knew immediately where to go for this because God had already set this up. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, catch this, so that I too may go and worship him. Isn't that great? Oh yeah, I wanna worship him too. Give me all the details of his whereabouts so that I too can worship him. Now you can't tell the story of Herod without telling the story of these guys, the Magi, because they're the ones that incite Herod to all of these actions. Well, who are the Magi? Well, if you have a, a nativity set in your home, uh, you probably have guys that look like this. These are the Magi. Uh, we have three of them, uh, not because there were actually three. We, we actually don't know uh, how many there were, but there were three gifts that they brought. So we just kind of assume there's probably three of them, uh, three, three magi. He, here's the deal. Um, these guys are, are really unknown to a lot of us. And so we have them in our nativity sets. We're not really sure uh, who they are, what's going on. Let me, let me unpack a little bit about the nature of these guys because it probably will surprise you. Now, the word magi comes from the same etymology as the word magician. So whatever you think about a magician, apply that to these guys and you start to figure out who they are. That's how they were thought of. These are not Israelites. 
which means they worship a different God. Let that sink in. These guys are going to be in the story, but they don't worship the God of the Bible. They worship a different God. These are uh, people from the East. They're from, uh, these are Persians from modern-day Iran. And the story of Jesus is not supposed to be their story. What's going on? Why are they here? Uh, these guys are kingmakers. They would often uh, support a king, present a king, you know, uh, establish the power of a king. That's what they did. And, and so they had different things that they did in that role. Uh, they were known as alchemists, if you know, uh, the study of alchemy. It was believed that people who had the power of alchemy could turn common everyday items into rare items and precious items. So it was believed that alchemists could turn ordinary things into really elaborate, expensive things like gold and frankincense and myrrh because they were alchemists. They're also astrologers. They would have been studying the night sky, the night sky checking the zodiac. And so when God decides, I want to communicate to these guys, notice how he does it. He uses a star. Now we think, oh, that's so cute. There's just huge one star in the sky. Well, why a star? Because that's what these guys believed in. That's what they were checking. That's what they were looking at to figure out, hey, what should we be doing? They would check the stars. So God says, okay, I can show up in the stars. I can, I can reveal myself to you. And you begin to see who these guys are. Now, if you've been with us in this series, talk about different ways each week that God communicates himself. The first week we talked about the story of Mary. God sends the archangel Gabriel to tell Mary. Uh, last week we talked about the story of Joseph, that God reveals to Joseph in dreams. And now we see God is revealing himself to the Magi through a star. God communicates in each of the ways that we need to hear it based on who we are. Now here's the deal. When you understand who these guys are, these, these pagan uh, you know, guys, uh, you, what you realize is most of us would not write these guys into this story. If this story was up to us, we would not include these guys in that story. Now I remember a few years back, when Harry Potter came out and uh, there was, you know, a, a bunch of hubbub, a bunch of some Christians about, well, I don't know if our kids should be watching Harry Potter. You know, we're just not, we're not comfortable with that. Look, if you've got Magi in your nativity set at home, uh, Harry Potter is the least of your concerns. <laughs> you've got pagan magicians in your home around baby Jesus. And you begin to go, oh, what are these guys doing there? What's the deal with these don't worship the same God, why are they there? Because God had planted a seed for them to find him. If you go back in the story, about 600 years, you get to a different story in the Old Testament of a guy named Daniel. Now Daniel was an Israelite who was deported out of Israel into a different kingdom. But while he was there, God presented him in front of that king and gave him great success. Let me show you how that story plays out. Daniel chapter 2, verse 27. Daniel replied to the king, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. So the king is going to his wise men, his magi, going, help me figure this out. And Daniel says, no magi can help you with this. But there's a God in heaven who knows the answer to it. And he reveals it to him. And then this is what happens in uh, verse 48. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and he lavished many gifts on him. He made him a ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. 
this Israelite boy becomes in charge of all the magi of a foreign kingdom and begins to tell them what to look for. This happens for a while. Chapter 6, verse 28 says, So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Daniel has all this success as he begins to tell these guys what to look for. There will be a star in the sky. Here's who you're looking for. There's going to be a king above all kings. You're going to make him a king. That's the king you're looking for. So for generation after generation after generation, these guys are waiting and looking for this new king who's going to be born. And finally they see a star in the sky and they say, that's it. That's what we've been looking for. God invites them into the story. Keep reading in verse 9. After the Magi heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, now keep note here, they're now in a house because it took them a while to travel there. So they're not there the, the moment in the night, you know, baby Jesus is born. They're not in that nativity set. Uh, it takes them a while to travel uh, from Moran. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of the alchemists, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. These guys are amazing when you realize what they're willing to do. They leave the security of their own country, of their own king, to go and travel and risk everything to go establish the kingdom of a new king. Now, I just imagine this, because again, we, we read these stories and go, yeah, no, no big deal. Here's a modernization of it. Imagine that God comes to you and says, hey, I've got a special assignment for you. All right, God, I'm in. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to North Korea. I want you to go find Kim Jong. I want you to tell him that you are there to present gifts and to establish the new emperor of North Korea. <laughs> Who's in? <laughs> You're like, send my husband. I'm not going. You know, like, he'll do it. We would go, whoa, I don't, I don't want to do that, God. I mean, God, give me something else to do. I don't want to do that. That's exactly what these guys do. They go to King Herod and tell him, hey, king of the Jews, there's a new king in town who's been born. And we're here to make him a king. Herod knows exactly what this means. Now, Herod doesn't acknowledge he's disturbed. He's too start, smart for that. He, he doesn't go, wait a minute, this guy's a rival. No, 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 he plays along, right? He, he's like, oh, tell me about him because I want to worship him too. Now, if you've got wise men uh, in your nativity set, I want you to think about your nativity set. Who else do you have? You know who I bet you don't have? A King Herod. <laughs> Any of your sets have a King Herod in it? You know why? Because he really didn't want to worship Jesus. Now, he says that. Oh, yeah, I'm all about worshiping Jesus. But he's not remotely about worshiping Jesus. He's saying that to maintain his power and manipulate others into control. And the same thing happens today. People can say all kinds of things. Oh, yeah, I'm all about worshiping Jesus. But often that is said just to maintain power, just to maintain control. So Herod, as a leader, knows all the right things to say. But these wise men, these magi learned from God himself. Whoa, 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 he's not about this. And so they go home another way. God warns these guys in a dream. He begins with a star, a way that they would understand, and then more intimately to them in a dream. It says, hey, 
don't go back to Herod. Herod is trying to trick you, don't go back to him. And if you think about it, now God is intimately communicating to these guys who don't even believe in him, don't even follow him. Their lives are devoted to other gods, and yet they're now being communicated directly from God. And what you realize is that God always invites outsiders to become insiders. This is the scandal of Christianity. That's why it's so offensive to so many people. Wait, wait, why, why would outsiders be welcomed in? See, the moment you become an insider, you, you get, you know, protective. Whoa, this is what we have, and we act like this, and we do that. Keep everyone else out. The guy goes, no, I'm going to invite them in. And the scandal of Christianity, even today, is that God keeps inviting outsiders to become insiders. And those of us insiders go, no, not them, not him, not her. Why, God? He goes, no, no, no. This story is bigger than you could ever imagine. And so he invites these pagan magicians to play a role in this story. You're going, what is going on here? Why is this happening? Now, when these guys decide, hey, we're not going to go back to Herod. We're going to follow God. They, they take an incredible risk. What that means, they would now be wanted men the rest of their lives. They, they've seen what Herod has done to his own family. They have directly defied him. They realize we're, we're going to be wanted men. And yet they want to follow a different God. They, they go, you know what, we're going we're to be part of a different story here. We're going to submit ourselves to this story. So eventually Herod realizes he's been outmatched. He's been outwitted. And you would think this would be the point. Where he'd go, all right, enough's enough. I tried. I did everything I could. I fought against it. I can't control the story. But that's not Herod. Because once you've already committed yourself to fight against the story, you just keep going and going and going. So when Herod learns he's been outwitted, he, he puts some math together. He goes, all right, there's a two-year window from the time that they saw the star until they got here and saw the baby. So I have a two-year gap of, of when this could take place. So he orders the execution of every male baby in Bethlehem two years and under. That's the only way he can guarantee that he can kill this king of the Jews who was born. But God says, nope, you're not going to win this story. And God makes sure that Jesus is taken care of and Jesus is not one of the babies that's killed. And Herod will go to whatever length possible to fight against the story. See, the foreign magi understood the power this baby brought. Yet the king of the Jews missed it. The king of the Jews, who you would expect, could say, oh, I, hey, I'm just, I'm just acting as king. This is the true king. And yet he misses it. So here's what happens. Verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. Herod, your story, it's done. It's ended. And the story of God moves on. This is what always happens when you decide, you know what, I will fight this story. Your story will end. It won't continue. There will be no more repercussions of it. And the story of God goes on. The historian Josephus once said this about King Herod. He was a man of great barbarity toward all men equally and a slave to his passion. That's what a life devoted to fighting against the story of God looks like. I don't want that to be said of me. Wow, Jeremy's just a slave to his passion. He fought against it. He tried to maintain control. He tried to have power, but it didn't work in the end. You either fight against the story or you'll submit your life to it. As we close today, here's a 
question I have for all of us. Has the Christmas story become your story? Each of these weeks, we're looking at this story from the lens of Mary, Joseph, and Herod and these, these magi. But has this story become your story? You see, Herod should have been in the story. He should be in the nativity set. He was a part of this. He could have played such an incredible role. But he missed it. He fought against it. And these guys don't belong in the story. It makes no sense why they are there. And yet God invited some outsiders to become insiders. And they agreed to it. They were willing to risk everything to be a part of this story. And what we learn from this is that it doesn't matter if you were raised in a different faith. It doesn't matter if you were raised as an atheist. God's going, come on, story's for you. It doesn't matter if you look at your life and you go, Jeremy, you don't understand where I've been. You don't understand the, the things that I've done. God goes, come on, story's for you. This is a story for everyone. No matter how much you may consider yourself an outsider, go, I, I just don't belong in this story. God's going, come on, it's a story for you. And when you understand that, you begin to bring other outsiders in. And you begin to be a catalyst to go, hey, everybody needs to experience a story. I, everybody needs to be a part of this because this story is for everyone, even when you think you don't belong in it. And so here's a real practical challenge for you today. Uh, next week we have our Christmas services. And we have lots of services, lots of times. Here are your options. But here's what I'm going to challenge you with. I want to challenge you to bring someone with you. I want you to think of someone who may be considered an outsider. They, they're not normally at church. This is not their story. What if you invited them to be an insider with you? Hey, my family is going to this service. Why don't you come join us? We'd love to have you be a part of this with us. Maybe that's a, a family member. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a neighbor. You know what? I, I want to invite you. And until we really own this story, we're never going to start being the ones that bring outsiders in. So here's what we're going to do. Before we close, I, I'm going to ask you to do something that might be a little bit strange. I want you to get your phones out right now. Go ahead, get your phones out. You guys are looking at me like, I'm not getting my phone out, church. Go ahead, I invite you. Please get your phone out. Okay, once your phone is out, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to give you time right now. I want you to text that person that the Spirit of God is putting on your heart and invite them to church with you next week. Right now. Hey, I'm thinking about you. Any chance you'd be interested in coming to Christmas services with me? We'd love to have you. We're going to give you a moment right now. I encourage you, if God is putting someone on your heart, why don't you send them a text right now? Go. Hopefully that's enough to at least get a text started or, or something going. I, I want to encourage you, be a part of this story with us. This is a story about outsiders becoming insiders. Why don't you be a part of that, of God using this same story to change people's lives today. Let's pray together. God, we're amazed as we compare and contrast Herod and the Magi. And just these, these two radically different responses to you. One of, of fighting against it 
to maintain control and power and one of just pure submission and, and a willingness to risk it all. God, we want to find ourselves in that story where we are willing to submit our lives to you in ever greater ways. And part of that means that we become the ones to invite outsiders in because that is your heart, is to bring people into this story. So God, as we think about in real time these services next weekend, pray for boldness as we invite others into this story. We invite others to experience the, the transforming love of God, that you are not distant, you are not far away. You are one of us. You are with us now. And God, this changes everything. May we be the storytellers that bring others into that story. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.